1 Kings, 1 Kings 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, page 301 in that blue Bible, if you're using that pew Bible. 1 Kings 19, let me lead up to chapter 19. So Elijah has told King Ahab, a rotten king, a really, really rotten king of God's people, um, there's not going to be any rain, so there's no rain for three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half year period, God says to Elijah, there's going to be rain, now call Ahab for the big confrontation on Mount Carmel. The first Kings 18 is a big confrontation, and it's as funny as can be. You're meant to laugh when you walk away. Because there's 400 talking heads and spiritual advisors and gurus for Baal, for Ahab and Baal, and they're up there trying to get their God to do something, and so Elijah taunts them as he should do. Uh, maybe your God is in the restroom. Maybe he's knocking the door a little harder. Maybe he's not paying. Maybe he's got his phone on silent. Maybe there's another way for you to text him. He's just taunting them, and Baal never answers. And then Elijah says, "Clear away." And he sets up a set, an altar. He prays to God, and God answers. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, answers. At that point, Elijah says, all of these false prophets must be put to death, and they were put to death. And you would think, and then comes the rain, you would think then that Ahab and Jezebel would be excited. Oh, wow, here's a God who really works. Here we come to 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods, plural, do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She is not going to give up her paganism. Then he was afraid, and he, ran, he rose and ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And when he's there, finally God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I'm the only one left. And God will say, No, you're not. All right, so you know the rest of the story, I hope. So that's 1 Kings 19. Let's go then to James chapter 5. James 5. We're going to pick up the last few verses in James as we now conclude our series from James, Hand and Heart. So we're at chapter 5, verse 13. If you're in that blue Bible, it should be a thousand, page 1013. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous man has great powers. It is working. Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What I've read to you from the Old Testament and from the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, if nothing else, may we be fortified in our prayers and cheered in catching the wayward. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide there. There's five points. There's a bunch of questions for the kids and for you to answer. So it was back in the mid-1990s. Our sons hadn't been born yet. Our girls were there. They were born. And we had moved to Jackson, Mississippi. And, and I was still in the Air Force recruiting medical professionals at this point. And while we were there, we joined this church, uh, St. Paul Presbyterian Church, which no longer exists. And um, the pastor's name was Wayne Rogers. And one night, after we'd been there about a year, one night we get a phone call. In the middle of the night, Pastor Rogers is calling us as he's calling everybody in the church. There was a young fellow, he was my age, so he's young at that time. I was 34 or so. His wife woke up in the middle of the night because of the silence next to her. He'd quit breathing, had a cardiac arrest right there, and it was the silence that woke her up. I guess he must have snored or something, right? So she has gone over, starts doing CPR, then she calls the uh, ambulance, and the first responders come, and they're constantly doing CPR because he keeps going into cardiac arrest. They're not even sure how long he's been without oxygen. Well, during that time, she's called the pastor and goes, I don't know what to do, pray for us. And so he sends out an urgent call, we pray. She's being told by the first responders he's probably not going to make it. He's probably going to be not going to make it when he gets to the hospital. So she races to the hospital. We're praying, and he's alive. And then the doctor says, and the nurses say to her, well, he's in a coma. Um, he may never come out of that. It doesn't look like he'll probably ever come out of that. We're not sure because there's been so many cardiac arrests, and there's oxygen deprivation, there's all those horrible things. We kept on praying, and later on that morning, he was no longer in a coma. Well, this is Russell, we're sorry to tell you, he's probably going to be in a vegetative state the rest of his life because it was this oxygen deprivation. We're praying, all of us, our whole church was praying. And one of the things we were praying is, Lord, do something so amazing that the medical community goes, wow, a miracle of God. By the next day, he's fully recovered. As full as you can after having cardiac arrest, right? But he's not in a vegetative state. He's not in a coma. He's not dead. In fact, he still runs a hospital as a hospital administrator to this day. When I think of passages like this, and when we're doing the series Sunday evenings on prayer, that story comes back over and over again. I have seen God do amazing things. So keep that story in the back of your head as we look through this passage. Because here, in James 5, 13-20, James is finishing up the letter to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, the scattered bands of believers in Jesus the Messiah. And he addresses... First off, he addresses some conditions in these congregations, tells them to convene the elders, 
walks them through confession, guides them to call on the Lord, and lastly, persuades them to catch the wayward. Five C's. Come on, I should be impressed. Yes, thank you. And so the conditions, verses 13 through 15, and I'll come back at these verses a second time here in a minute, but notice the conditions. There in verses 13 through 15, James fires off three conditions that one will meet in a Christian assembly. The suffering, the sunny, and the sick. He doesn't use the word sunny, I do, but the suffering, the sunny, and the sick. He begins with the suffering. Notice how he, he just starts right up. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James, my friends, James has been dealing with suffering Christians since chapter 1, verse 2. If anyone meets any trial, count of all joy, my brothers. Right? From there all the way through, he has been talking to suffering Christians. And we just finished last week, verses 7 through 11, and he was talking about suffering Christians. It's no surprise. He's back to the suffering he begins with the suffering because he's been dealing with them all through this letter. And what does he bid the suffering believers to do? He bids them to pray. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Earlier, if you just take your eyeballs and go back up to verse 4, when he was talking about the ravaged Christians who were being ravaged by the certain wealthy people, he says what? He says their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This letter is full of encouragement to those who are on the losing end. And one of the encouragements is to pray. Yes, your cries will come to the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he rightly encourages them to pray. In fact, he will not leave prayer alone as he goes through these verses, and so we'll come back around to it in a minute. But notice further, he goes and instructs the sunny. This is what he says. He says, if anyone cheerful... Let him sing praises, right? The sunny. He instructs the sunny to lift their voices in praise. And brothers, sisters, singing is a very Christian act. As we heard from in the call to worship from Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is a very Christian act. We should always be known as a singing people. Always. I remember when we were in Omaha, Nebraska, we were at a PCA church. It was our first PCA church to ever be members of. And we had some visitors come. There was a University of Nebraska was had a branch right there in Omaha. And uh, so we had some Chinese visitors come. And they had never seen a Christian church, never been in one. They didn't understand English very well, but they understood it well enough. And they came into the church. And the thing that stood out to them was not all the music or per se and all the preaching and all that, the thing that stuck out to them is that that church sang together and they liked it. The Christians liked singing together. They had never seen that before and they sang in unison. They sang together. We should be always known as a singing people. Rightly or wrongly, fairly or otherwise, that's how I often gauge the health of a congregation. When I'm visiting somewhere, if there's not a lot of people singing because nobody likes to sing, there's probably things going on in this church. And when there's a lot of singing, people are glad to sing, glad to sing God's praises together. They don't care what you think about the fact they can't carry a tune in a bucket. Right? And they're singing, praise the Lord. Just a rule of thumb that I have. 
Singing is a Christian act. And so he tells the sonny, well, if you're sunny, go sing. It's great. I love it. And then finally, he directs the sick. He directs the sick to convene the elders to pray for them and anoint them with oil. And we'll come back to that part in just a minute. But notice he's talking to the sick there to do something. James is not whitewashing any of those three conditions, the suffering, the sunny, or the sick. Notice that he, James does not taunt the suffering or the sick. Why, you should be sunny like those guys. In fact, you just need to suck it up, buttercup. Where's your faith for crying out loud? Notice he doesn't talk to it. James does not show any favoritism toward the sunny. Now, American Christians like to show favoritism toward the sunny. You know what I mean? Just go, just go to Margot. Just go to any Christian bookstore. You'll see all kinds of things about how to have the victorious Christian faith. It's all about being sunny. We like to show lots of favoritism toward the sunny, over the suffering and the sick, but James shows no favoritism to any one of them. He honors them all by taking each and every one of their conditions seriously. Brothers and sisters, we meet these conditions, the suffering, the sunny, and the sick in our assemblies at any given time, at any given moment. And so we similarly should not show favoritism to any one of those conditions, but give them their due. Someone's sunny, praise the Lord, they're sunny. Someone is suffering, don't shame them and taunt them. Be with them, right? Help them through it. Those who are sick, etc. Well, and he directs specifically, and very focusedly, he directs the sick to convene the elders, convene the elders, and that's verses 14 through 15. Notice it says, James says, to convene the sick are to convene the elders of the ecclesia, the church. Now earlier, James called the gatherings, back in chapter 2, verse 2, he called them in the Greek the synagogue, the synagogues. So it's interesting that we're starting to see now where the gatherings of Christians are being known more and more as ecclesia, as the called out gathering, the church. But he says, call the elders of the church. As the leaders and the caretakers of the church, they're the right group to call. Many times, Christians seem to want to avoid convening the elders or conversing with them about real needs until it's too late and the house is burnt down around their heads. I was in a church one time that I pastored, and I never got a call. When they were going to the hospital, I didn't know. Nobody told me they were going to the hospital. Nobody told me they were, getting sur- they were having surgery. Nobody told me. But guarantee when they got back to the church building, guess what they were? Upset because I didn't come and see them. I don't know if they thought I was supposed to just pick it up from the airwaves or tea leaves or what. It was the craziest thing. And then I've dealt with people who have gone through marital strife and other issues. And usually they don't come talk to us until it's too late. And what James is requiring here, what he's calling for here, is he's urging an earlier and earnest engagement with the elders of the church. Here, specifically, for the sick, that they would convene the elders so that they would pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, as the elders pray, they are to anoint with oil in this situation specifically. You have to ask the question, why is that? And there are lots of answers people will give you, but there's two possibilities, broadly and generally, that seem to be clear. It could be that James is simply encouraging the medicinal use of oil. You remember the Good Samaritan? Anybody remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember? Yeah, very good. So what did the Good Samaritan do when he got the guy off the side of the road who'd been beaten up and gashed and everything? When he gets him up off the road, what does he do with his wound? Do you remember? He does bandage, but before he bandages them, then what? He pours wine and oil, right? So notice the medicinal use of oil. In a day with no antibiotics, thank God for wine, right? Especially when you got open wounds. And then the oil seals it and is part of that. So it's very likely that one aspect is, James is saying, call the elders and let them encourage you to keep taking your medicine. Now, some of us are very bad patients, so we don't like that. So we're going to move on to the next story here. But the other option possibly is this, or maybe these all go together, is that the anointing with oil is a visible sign, a visible sign of setting apart the sick for God's special focus. All the way through the Old Testament, when you anointed with oil, it was setting that person apart, whether prophet, priest, or king, setting them apart for a specific focus, a special focus by God. It could very well be, Lord, this one that we are now anointing with oil, this is the one we're talking about, that you would heal this one. Either way, could be some other possibilities, but I, what I want you to see, whatever the original purpose was, and there's lots of fistfights over it, so don't, we don't want to get into fistfights. Notice what James is instructing us to do is to have our bodies go along with our begging. Have the elders pray and anoint. Do you hear the physical action? Pray and anoint. There's a physical action. Our bodies go along with our begging. Engaging our actions and invoking the Almighty belong together with each other. Now, I think that's extremely important. I don't know why we don't like to engage our bodies in prayer and in worship. We like to engage them everywhere else. Just go to an OU or an OSU game. You know what I'm saying? There's lots of body engagement there. And it goes along with the words. But, but engaging our bodies with our begging, our prayer, our, our posture with our praying, that's biblical. It's all over the scripture. To not do it is not normal, usually. Now, if you don't have, if you have problems with it, I'm not telling you to go do it and make yourself feel weird or anything. But it is more fitting to do so, to actually engage your bodies. I really appreciate the fact that we kneel when we do a confession of sin. Your body is thrown in there. Lord, I am sorry for these sins. See, I am on my knees before you, just like, just like the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Very fitting. And more and more of you are raising your hands or at least your faces when we sing the doxology of the glory of Patri. What's the perfect thing to do with your body during the doxology of the glory of Patri? Look up. Praise God from whom you right? How fitting. And so that's what James is referring to is how the elders come in and they put their begging and their bodies together, pray for them and anoint them with oil, which requires touch. For somebody who's a very tactile person, that makes my day. So, 
It's always good to remember that it encompasses touch. It's good to remember because God created us as body and soul creatures. And our bodies are very much part of our begging and our postures are rightly going, rightly go along with our prayers. So one of the results of convening the elders of the church is to open up confession. And that's the rest of verse 15 into verse 16. Open up confession. Notice how James puts it. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. Now, I am sad to say, and you probably have been on the receiving end of this, I am sad to say there are some who think that sickness is obviously and clearly the end result of some sin you have done. Has anybody been on the receiving end of that? Yeah. My friends, sickness, sickness is not the essential or inevitable result of sin, of our personal sin. Sickness is not the essential or inevitable result of our sin. Now, clearly, there are some sicknesses that go along with sin. You get involved in a sexual immorality, don't be surprised if an STI shows up. Sexually, anyway, you got that, right? Or whatever. There are some sicknesses that just come with sin. But just because somebody's sick does not mean they have committed some egregious sin, and James doesn't think that either. But the illness, especially the incapacitating kinds, can bring to mind the sins of the past that have never been dealt with. I have attended to several who had chronic ailments or debilitating diseases and sat with them and read this passage to them, asking them if there are any sins that they need to confess to God or anyone that they need to get right with. It's the right time to read the passage. I know everybody says you should be really positive when you go see somebody who's sick and dying or ailing or whatever. But this is a very fitting passage. I remember one time, and I told you this, somebody in the store before, one fellow who had gone into a coma, and it was the worst dying ever. I mean, the hospice nurses, they were shocked. I mean, it's, it's rare to shock a seasoned hospice nurse. And they were just traumatized because it was the worst kind. It was just thrashing and moaning and all. And I got in and I talked to the family. I said, um, they're all in tears. What do you do? Can you do something? You know, is there, a, is there like a child, a son, an adult son or daughter that maybe, or, or a wife or something that he's been estranged from? And the mother and the daughter look at each other and look at me and say, how do you know? I said, well, well, what is it? It's his son. Okay, well, let's call his son and say, because that's what he's doing. He's... He's now dying, and he's in a coma, and he is thrashing about because he needs to be reconciled to his son before the last few minutes of breath. No, he made us swear that we would never call him. Okay, you give me his phone number, I'll call him, and that way you don't break your vow. No. Are you serious? I don't care what he said when he was conscious. He knows the end is coming, and his conscience is killing him. And you're letting him die miserably. No. Okay. Can't do anything for you. Right? That was it. He died like the next day, and all the hospice nurses in the hospice doctor said it was the worst thing ever. And when there is real crisis, when there is real sickness, it is a time in which you have a moment to reflect and actually look over your life. 
and to see where you've fallen short. And maybe there's some amends that need to be made. And maybe, maybe there's some accounts you need to set right. Don't let a good illness, so to speak, pass you by. <laughs> I hate to put it that way. But... And friends, it's also a time to reflect on the shortness of your life when you're going through an illness. Remembering your own inevitable day of death is just around the corner. James mentioned it back in chapter 4. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's time, it is a good time to set accounts right. And the promise is very clear. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the healing may not always be physical, at least at this point. But spiritual, emotional, relational, but you know that because Christ has risen, he's risen indeed. That one day that prayer will be answered physically. Praise the Lord. Well, along with confessing sins, James encourages calling upon God, and that's verse, the rest of verse 16 and verse 18. He begins there by talking about uh, the, the prayer of a righteous person is great power as it is working and so forth. Notice that James states that the prayer, for, pray for one another that you may be healed. He now moves and he still comes back, he keeps coming back around to this theme of prayer. And so he moves to a strong promise and a solid example that will arouse our God confidence in prayer. I'm saying that intentionally because sometimes people want you to have prayer confidence. I don't want you to have prayer confidence, confidence in your prayer. I want you to have God confidence in the one who actually hears you and answers prayer. Right? That's what matters, is God confidence in prayer. And he gives us strong reasons to rouse our God confidence in prayer. And the promise states the prayer of a righteous person has great powers. It is working. Now, whatever translation you're using, I'm going to tell you, it's a difficult passage in the Greek to translate. And so therefore, do not be shocked. Your translation may come out differently than that translation in that verse. It's a difficult passage in the Greek to translate. But the concept and the point is in essence this. That God uses our prayers to bring about His plans. God uses our prayers to bring about His plans. And those of you here last Sunday night, you're like, I heard this sermon last week. You did. And more. So Doug Kelly, the longtime professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, in his book, If God Knows Why Pray, it should be right there in your sermon notes. He puts it this way. The sovereign God on his throne, who has planned all things from the beginning to the end, has arranged his plans in such a way that the prayers of the saints are one of the major means he uses to accomplish his final goal. Instead of the sovereignty of God clashing with the prayers of, believer, of the believer, the two actually presuppose one another and fulfill and undergird one another. It should encourage you. So now, to nail down this promise in our hearts, notice that James then looks at a solid example. He looks at the example of Elijah. Now notice what he says first off. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Almost nobody ever talks about that. They go immediately to the prayers he did. But here's Elijah. He was a man with a nature like ours. You will find his tale in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 2. By the way, parents, 
I've asked the kids in the sermon notes and the questions on there for you to help them to read Elijah's story this coming week. Please do. You'll find Elijah's story there, and you will notice um, that Elijah was no Mr. Super Saint. He worried and he feared a lot and all the time, it seems. For example, he hid out of sight while Ahab and Jezebel were murdering all the prophets that they could lay their blood-stained fingers upon, and they killed plenty. And then after the Mount Carmel incident of chapter 18, he realized, as we read in chapter 19, that the royal pair were not going to change and were after his blood. And once more, he hightails it down south. And what does he cry out? Oh, go ahead and take me. I'm done. He's a man with a nature like ours. But notice that keeping to his point about a righteous person's prayers being affected, James points out the whole Mount Carmel affair, chapter 18, that it was all Elijah's doing because he prayed. 1 Kings 17 does not tell us that Elijah prayed for the drought to come. It's James who tells us that Elijah prayed for the drought and that God answered him. And so the whole three and a half years of drought and dirt with all that went with it, came about because one man seeking God's honor prayed. One man seeking God's honor prayed. And the drought is reversed three and a half years later because one man seeking God's honor prayed. One man seeking God's honor. We really do have strong promise and a solid example to arouse our God confidence in prayer. There's another aspect of this. If you were listening to 1 Kings 19, or yeah, when I read 1 Kings 19, Elijah is praying, kill me, take me now, Lord. And he does it, but he does answer his prayer in a way that Elijah never expected. He keeps him in the fight. And he reminds him that there are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he makes him resilient to the very end and the last day. He pulls him up in chariots of fire. He does answer Elijah's prayer. Years later, just not the way Elijah expected. Both of those are encouraging. They're not encouraging to you. They're encouraging to you. We really do have strong promise, a solid example to arouse our God confidence in prayer. So, brothers and sisters, call on the Lord, desiring the honor of God. And then with expectation and earnestness, see what amazing things God will do. Finally, James ends inspiring us to catch the wayward. To catch the wayward is verses 19 through 20. Notice that James ends this letter with one more promise. Now, I want you to realize the sad situation of verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, the sad situation of verse 19 has actually been playing out through this whole letter. The sad situation of verse 19 has been playing out through this whole letter. James has been addressing those who have been wandering away, clear back to chapter 1 when he was calling the double-minded man to not be double-minded any longer because he's unstable. 
And at the end of chapter 1, when he calls those who are exhibiting phony religion because they will not bridle their tongues, he's calling them to bridle their tongues and exercise real, faithful religion. And in chapter 2, when he's challenging the church because the church is showing favoritism, being wowed by the wealthy and put off by the penurious, they're wandering from the faith and he is trying to, he is calling them back. In chapter 3, when he talks about unbridled tongues and spends all chapter talking about the way we communicate. Why is he doing that? Because lots of people are wandering away. Just follow their tongues and you'll know what I mean. Using earthly wisdom that is sensual, demonic, that is filled with selfish ambition and jealousy. And so they're wandering away and he's calling them back. Chapter 4 and all the murderous fighting going on back and forth because they've allowed their desires and they've allowed their passions to rule and dominate them. Some are wandering away, and he is calling them back. And then in chapter 4, 11 through chapter 5, 6, the three specific groups, the judgmental, the Christian businessmen who do not have God anywhere in their equation, and then the ravaging rich in chapter 5, 1 through 6. And now, here, the last two verses, James is reminding the rest of his readers that we all have an obligation to reach out to the ones who are wandering down the wrong path. Now, our tendency is to turn away from them, to wipe off our hands and say, good riddance, blessed subtraction, Jesus. Right? That's our normal tendency. But James reminds us, dear friends, that there is hope. And so therefore, launch out and reach out, knowing that there is more mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in any of us. He is calling upon us to reach out and launch out with hope. That's why he goes on to say, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, there is hope. Since the way back is wide open, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord Jesus and he will lift you up. The way open, the way back is wide open, so there is hope. Since the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, shows no partiality, then there is hope. And so if you can catch them, if you can catch them, there will be restoration from their past sin. And there will be redirection that will keep them from sabotaging their future. It will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. And that's where James ends his letter. Catch them if you can. This is what he's been doing in this whole letter. So, brothers and sisters, we end James. Hand and heart. Faith and works go together go together better than chocolate and cherries, right? And so we're back again to Hannah Moore's poem that she wrote in the 18th century. 
But she's talking about James. If faith produced no works, I see that faith is not a living truth. Does faith and works together grow? No separate life the heir can know. Their soul and body, hand and heart, what God hath joined, let no man part. Hand and heart. Lord God, we thank you for James. We thank you for this gospel-rich and saturated and gospel-driven letter. It is not an epistle of straw. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to recall portions of James and to remember that there's hope. We pray that, Lord, that you would help us to always persist in prayer having God confidence in prayer. And that you would guide us to reach out, to launch out, and to catch the wave. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you and we pray in Jesus' name.